Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So guys, thank you so much for all of your messages. Thank you so much for everything since we've kind of been in lockdown. And the, the messages have been amazing. The listenership has gone mental and the response has been absolutely incredible. I've been so lucky with the guests that I've had on. And this week's guest has been recommended to me by a, a previous guest last week, which was Philly McMahon. So this week's guest is Brian Penny. So Brian is the author of an incredible book called Bonus Time. He is a PhD candidate. He is a university lecturer in Trinity where he teaches the neuroscience of mindfulness and addiction. And I think Brian's biggest message is that he's a former heroin addict, but I'm going to get let Brian talk about his story and you guys are going to be blown away. Like I've been talking to Brian now for probably about 20 minutes, 25 minutes on the amount of little nuggets and little gems that Brian has dropped in that has resonated with me. Uh, have been amazing so Brian thank you so much for coming on Delighted thanks for inviting me Shane delighted to be here How are you holding up? I'm holding up very very well um, I have to say it's um, as I mentioned to a lot of people it's nearly it's nearly hard to say that you're thriving under lockdown because I know some people are really really struggling but I've been very lucky with my job I've been very lucky with um, people having close to me haven't gotten sick or anything like that and I've been just with it with the with the tools and tactics that I implement in my own life. Like I, I often I've said it to you before, this like I feel like I've been training for this for six and a half years in recovery, and they've just they've served me very very well in lockdown. I have to say that's that's amazing. And as you said, there are people struggling. I think it is trying to find your own way to try and adapt and try to figure out your own way that works for you. Like there obviously are going to be crappy days. There's crappy days even when the good times were happening or when normality was. What is kind of figuring out what, what what works for you. So Brian, I am going to let you take over the microphone here and tell us your story because I've heard interviews and I've been blown away by the interviews. I've read your blogs. I have listened to the podcasts that you've been on and Philly's uh, conversation about yourself as well. I was blown apart. I was blown away. So I'm going to let you take it away from here. And then if I have questions that I have in front of me, and I, I'd say you're going to answer them all as soon as you start talking. So I'm going to let you take it away. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Thanks, Shane. So I, I, I always, I always bring it back to the start of my story. Like people say, where did the start? And I started from the moment I was born, like literally from the moment that I was born. So I came into the world with a condition known as uh, intestinal malrotation, and it's literally my intestines were twisted and I wasn't getting any nutrition into my body and I literally nearly died I was misdiagnosed several times they taught me mother I was like a young silly mother and the doctors just completely messed up and it got to the stage where I lost half my birth weight and I nearly died emergency surgery rushed through the Dublin streets and a police escort to Hollis Street Hospital I think at the time emergency surgery given a very little chance of survival but the big part of that was that it was I only found out about this when I wrote my book was that I was, only, I was born in 1978. It was only in 1985 that the medical practice, world medical practice, realized that infants experience pain like normal human beings. Crazy, crazy thinking back in the time based on weak neurological evidence from the 1940s. So I basically went under the knife without the general anesthetic as an infant. And um, so what, what, what I believe, I had a lot of complications from that surgery, like I survived obviously, and I had a lot of complications from that surgery and I was crying for the first 18 months of my life, like literally non-stop crying. So since I've gone back to doing my psychology degree and I'm doing my PhD research, uh, what I found out is that organisms are, are uh, any organism are humans as well, obviously. Um, I would have, from a learning perspective, I would have viewed the world as a very scary place. I would have associated my environment 
I think that that the previous that early trauma, that early experience, literally just primed me for a life of anxiety. So I was a heroin addict for fifteen years, and um, registered methadone addict for twelve of them years, like heavy, heavy in addiction. And it, well, addiction was not my problem. My problem was anxiety and overthinking. I was always worried, and I was consumed by anxiety. I was like, I used to be afraid my mom and dad were gonna die. They'd never come home. I was just consumed by these strange thoughts. There's something I write about in the book. I remember watching a World War film with my dad and I heard a siren going off in the Vietnam War. And I was up in my room the next day playing with my toys and I heard this noise outside like a siren. And I thought it was World War Three running down to tell everyone about it. So I just had this weird mindset that I think was shaped from my early experiences. And well, what I remember, like even though I came from a loving family as well, there was a lot of addiction issues in the family as well. And I just always remember being very restless, very agitated kid, full of anxiety. We didn't have the language for it back then. And then I was at the sports as well. I was good in school. But um, when I, I came from a pretty disadvantaged area, there was drugs in the area. And I had a knee injury when I was 14. And I, I had my first puff of a cigarette. I think someone said you get a head buzz off it. And that just kicked off this little, little mad curiosity into drugs. And within a few weeks, I was smoking hash. Within a few weeks, months after that, I was taking tablets. I was taking acid, sniffing petrol in the fields. I just got obsessed with taking drugs because I think they were taking me away from myself. And that sort of started drinking then as well. And then when I was 17, I, there's a chapter in my book called Fallen in Love. And the whole chapter is about my first time doing heroin. And it was like I described in the book, it was like a soft, warm blanket was just wrapped around my soul. It was like a whisper to me, I have you keep me close and everything will be okay and although I didn't become fully physically addicted for a couple of years I was doing heroin once a week once maybe two weeks for a while and always keeping it close and it was just that was that was the start of the end for me and by the time I was 20 I was a full-blown heroin addict well I wasn't full-blown heroin addict. I started getting taken out on a regular basis because I had a panic attack and I couldn't cope with the panic attacks and within a few years then full-blown heroin addict and that was me until I was 35 years of age and like, what was your moment that you kind of thought, I actually need to get help? Yeah, and it's really interesting. So a lot, a lot of people um, hear my story and, and you have the stereotypical addict thing in their heads, but addiction isn't even like that, especially it's, it's very different than even my heroin addicts as well. So I was a functional addict for a lot of that time. People thought I was an alcoholic. You've seen pictures of me before or after, like I look incredibly bad. And, um, but I was, um, people thought I was an alcoholic. So, what happened in the end was when I was 35, I stopped functioning. I lost everything. I lost my mind, my job, and my health, and every important relationship in my life. And the moment was not that I'm going to get off drugs. The moment was, right, I need to do something differently. This isn't working. I had no way of making money. My job was gone. I had no way of getting money. Um, I'd lost everything, and I had to do something different. So I went into... Um, I tried to get into a detox facility. I talked to my clinic where I was at, where I was at, get, got me methadone. And I remember them saying to me, look, you have too many benzodiazepine in your system on top of heroin and stuff like that. And what I said was, right, but I need to get clean now. If I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. Like, I was really on death door at this stage. I was in a bad way. And they said, look, you're in too much of an insurance risk for detox. You can wait six weeks to go into another place. We'll get you fixed up in there. So I just knew there was something in me being screaming at me. This isn't going to happen. You need to do this now. And I'm in my kitchen right now of the house where I done that detox. The home, I, I decided to do a home detox. And the sitting room, and um, we're a couple of feet away from me here, is where I started that home detox two days in. And two two days into that de- home detox, I described I, I started my book with the prologue of the book by this experience. And it was not only the most painful night in my life, it was the most important night in my life. 
and I woke up lying on me sitting around the floor and there was blood everywhere and what actually happened was I had a convulsive seizure so convulsive seizure happens when every neuron in your, all the neurons in your brain fire at the same time and that's where the convulsions like the muscle convulsions come from so I'd actually driven my teeth into my tongue and pierced the centre of my tongue and that's where the blood was coming from my brother thought he was dead when he walked in there was blood everywhere I was slumped on the ground and I was rushed I got obviously I wasn't dead and he put a toilet was he rang me dad saying I think Brian's dead so it was horrible for the family but um, he called the ambulance I was brought to the hospital I vague memories of what happened that night I started flashes of what was going on before and after that but what I do I've never vividly waking up in the hospital tro- on a hospital trolley in Blanchestown Hospital several hours later and I remember just I was woke up and I came to you on the trolley and I was just the best way I could describe it was I was emotionally mentally and physically broken but I was also suffering extreme anxiety. Like, if you take drugs to escape anxiety, the, the, the uh, withdrawal is the rebound of that. It's like a spring being pushed. It's like an unleashing of that spring. That's what withdrawal is. So it's just this intense wave of anxiety through my body as well. And I remember just wanting to jump out of my skin. Like, I was like, I need to get out of myself. But I hadn't got the strength. I was just in such a bad way after the seizure. And my tongue, my God, my tongue. But um, so I remember trying to slumping up off the trolley, trying to pull myself up. And my eyes fixated on this fire extinguisher on the wall. And it was like I was just drawn into the moment of this fire extinguisher. And I remember just looking at it. It was just like I was in a trance looking at this fire extinguisher. And I remember thinking, that's a fire extinguisher. And then I was saying, that's, that colour is red. And I was saying to myself, is it? But it's, what is it? And I, I couldn't put the concept together. The best way I tried to describe it was like links of a chain that I knew should have gone together, but I didn't know how to put them together. So it wasn't a red fire extinguisher. And I started looking around the rest of the room. I was like, language didn't make sense to me anymore. Concepts didn't make sense to me anymore. And I remember just getting this feeling, like this feeling of just, oh my God, that's Brenda. You've done it. Game over. You're screwed. You've seriously done it now. And I remember waiting for this this horrific panic to come over me. What would have usually happened? Because anxiety drove my whole life. And it didn't happen. It was like this sort of, a little bit of, a little bit of peace within that moment. And it was just, what, what I described was, I remember just saying to myself, I can't do this anymore. I can't fight this anymore. I'm done. I surrender. Game over. I'm just done with this whole thing and I can't do this. And I believe that was the moment that completely transformed my life where I stopped fighting with my own mind. I stopped trying to argue with reality. I was always arguing with what is. I was suffering with anxiety, but I never accepted it. I always fought it. I, I, I refused to believe I was a real addict. I always fought it. And that was the moment when I just started to change my, 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 my way of thinking. Now, in saying that as well, there was an, I, I had another four weeks at home waiting for the benzos to come out of my system and it was broken even more. I had another couple of seizures. I was back into hospital. Then I went to a detox facility when the benzos were out of my system and I had five weeks coming off heroin there as well. But the fire extinguisher incident was something for me. That was, that was the crack of the ego. That was the opening. That was the key moment. But on my first day clean, on October 8, 2013, it was my very first day clean and it was like that was the big shift in my perspective the big feeling shift in my perspective and it's something that had been happening days before that and I remember just I was on a farm the detox facility was on a farm up in Nob and I remember one of the mornings I just felt wonderful I just the world just felt light and different and I remember walking out to the farm that morning and the best way I can describe it was it was like the world just had this energy in it that I never knew before the colours were more colourful sounds were more cheerful I remember the dew drops of that morning it was a lovely October dew soaked morning and they looked like diamonds and it was just this energy came into my life 
And where my study, I, 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 I began learning about mindfulness there, Eastern philosophy, and I became intensely curious about life and psychology and human suffering. And what I've since learned from that experience about going back to college, now my mind is a lot busier now, mind you, but what I learned from that experience was that through the suffering of whatever I went through, my mind went quiet. And when my mind went quiet, it was like anxiety left me. Because I remember doing a meditation in the detox center and the treatment center after it, and they were talking about thoughts come in, thoughts go away. And I remember just starting to wait and sitting there when there's no thoughts. And my mind was just very still, and I had that realization. So what my research has since gone into looking at the relationship between language and emotion, and the research shows that language is a vehicle for emotion. So I had this negative internal chatter, this overthinking, worrying and all, and I was filling myself full of all these difficult emotions. And I think that was a breakthrough moment for me, that perspective shift when my mind went quiet, and it just gave me an opening to experience life as it is. And I really haven't looked back from there, to be quite honest. I don't even know what to say. Like, <laughs> there's rare enough times that I'm speechless, but that is that. That's that's an incredible story. And like, what you said, uh, September, October, twenty thirteen. You've been clean since. Yeah, eighth of October, two thousand fourteen. Yeah, it's mad. Um, I think what we spoke about off air was like how bad it had gotten for you. you you've mentioned that you used like you you brought your mom on some of the the deals and stuff like you're, you were yeah. doing like how did the kind of the drug dealing start because i think that when i read that when i was reading it off your website i kind of had a little bit of a chuckle that it was it's a it's it's a unique story of how you started doing it but then you yeah. brought your but then when you talk about bringing your mom your mom along to it as well can you kind of go into that a little bit more detail yeah, no problem. And for me, I remember, um, like I, I, I start. It's in the book as well. Like I start selling hash at a young age as well. I remember us and all my friends. We were all buying buying hash uh, off these dealers, and we we're like, I was like, we're getting ripped off. And I was like, I can just buy a bigger lump of hash and sell it to my friends. And we're not getting ripped off. So I seen it as nearly an entrepreneurial thing. Like I didn't even see it as as a problem. Like. And that started to spiral down control. Like, I didn't believe I was a real addict in inverted commas for years. That was that self-deception that I, I used to trick myself. And I didn't believe I was a real uh, drug dealer either. But that, that escalated into selling cocaine. I ended up selling heroin in the end. Now, I, 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 not that I'm justifying it, but I never, I always, it was always to feed a habit. So I never actually made money off drugs. It was always to feed me heroin habit, which is still wrong. It was still drug dealing. But I basically was able to deceive myself and try to tell myself that I'm not really doing, I'm not, I'm not really stepping over the line. And that self-deception got so bad. Like the essence of my book is self-deception. I, I say it in the book that I think this captures the book. I was a black belt in self-deception and I could cross any boundary or take any action by telling myself a lie and believing it. And that basically carried me forward into the addiction and deeper and deeper and deeper into addiction. And near the end of my addiction, where it got so bad that I looked so addicted and I was, I was struggling with knee injuries, fluid in my knee, just from lack of nutrition and drugs in my system, that I couldn't even walk anywhere. And I remember like tricking my mom. My mom and sister were like, my family were heartbroken watching me just throw my life away. And I remember one stage bringing my mom on it, on it, um, on it, on it to get drugs one time, which was just crying in the car because she just seemed to stay in me. And then I brought her another time and um, some guy owed me a lot of money and I was in the car at the time with me mum and this, there was a dangerous scenario around this and I just said, oh, we have to go here with me mum. So I literally brought her to collect money on a drug deal with thousands of euros were involved in it. Like I could have gotten her into a lot of trouble and bringing me sister on drug deals, telling her I was buying drugs but I was actually selling drugs and the stories that she told me of how fearful she was, like 
but I was able to rationalise it at the time. And to be quite honest, Shane, I just didn't really care. It got to the stage, there's a chapter in the book saying, I don't care. I only cared about one thing, me getting my drugs to soothe my anxiety. And that's all that matters. That's, like, there was, there was another part of when I was doing the research as well was when you were talking about like some of the substances that you used to take as well like it wasn't only heroin there was other stuff there was petrol at one point like what kind of other stuff were you taking the the, the petrol would have been the early days so starting off with hash then petrol and then uh, tablets like uh, sleeping tablets and stuff like that and alcohol obviously as well I'd actually done methadone at 16 years of age not realising it was actually a substitute for heroin which is a bit strange and then I started taking heroin at 17 but uh, cocaine lots of cocaine as well but it got to the stage where like I I, I was like trauma it's really interesting I only found myself by writing the book as well like I didn't get the anaesthetic I I needed as an infant I needed an anaesthetic I never got that and I was traumatised by that and I still struggle with um, with even the scar on my stomach I still have a little bit of a phobic reaction to it so I found that anaesthetic when I was 17 in heroin and I just went around with it from there but it got to the stage in my addiction then where heroin wasn't working anymore not to the levels I needed it to so basically I was just taking anything and everything just to numb the pain so it was like bottles of vodka like a shoulder of vodka a day a couple of bags of heroin a day methadone sleeping tablets and benzodiazepines and I was just taking a mixture of these just to numb anxiety that's that's what it was all about for me it was medicating me anxiety as much as I could but then it stopped working and it just started to spiral then you know but you were doing all of this while trying to juggle a so-called real job as well. Yeah. What yeah. was what was the real job and what was <laughs> the real job? The real um, job, yeah. As I call it, because uh, yeah, I, had, I, I had one of those. <laughs> um, but what was your what was your day job and, and like how did how I don't know how you functioned one don't know how you got there two. And how you left there still standing three and then went three. Right. So it's uh, it's all in the book if anyone wants the details, but I'll give you the short sum- summary here. Um so basically um they thought I was an addict or they thought I was an alcoholic. The major management thought I was an, a, a, an alcoholic. So that was the one thing that sort of kept me in the job. I had some very, very good friends in my job and I, um, even some of the people that I worked around sort of enabled me to an extent were protecting me but it was a form of enabling in the end like I used to fall asleep and they'd wake me up and I'd be goofing off in the chair and stuff and I even what, what I'd done in, in work as well was so like anxiety was always my problem like I, I, I literally couldn't cope with anxiety so what I'd used to do I'd go into work in the mornings I'd take a minimal amount of heroin I'd take some methadone a tablet or two a minimal amount of heroin just to get me get, me, get the edge of anxiety off me and then after work then I just binge on drugs and anxiety and then the whole I, I'd be just wasting myself away sitting on my couch at home and then the night time would come I wouldn't be able to sleep um, I'd probably get to sleep at 3 in the morning wake up as, supposed to be in at 7 wake up wake up at 7 get in for 8 late all them kinds of problems and the whole the, the whole rigmarole would start again so it was a horrific life that I used to live just that was a groundhog day and but then I started to start getting out of control and then with the job and um, I was falling asleep more I was goofing off more I was having to take more drugs so the, the job was actually I was a graphic artist so it was, it, I, it was in a printing company and I was doing graphic design and we used to have a dark room in there as well a no access area dark room so I used to go in and smoke heroin in the dark rooms where nobody we could lock the doors and pretend the light was off and it was a no access area 
so I'd start to set up loads of little things like that to get me by. Like I used to smoke heroin in the jack, so I couldn't go in there. And people just didn't expect that was going on. Like they just didn't think that was going on. I nearly used that to my advantage. That there's no way would people think I was doing that. And another reason why I kept my job for so long was that I was very good at my job. When I was awake, which is a you think that's a basic prerequisite for being in your job, but even in the depths of my addiction, and um, some of the people in the in the customer service offices, they'd come to me for the very technical questions because I was doing it for years, and I'm still an addict at heart, and I'm still addicted to learning, I'm addicted to Eastern philosophy, I'm addicted to psychology. But even back then, when I was starting the job, if I do anything, I don't do it by hand. So I got addicted to me to the technical area of the job. So I knew the ins and outs of the job completely. I was very good at my job. And I think that combined with people helping me and me trying to put up this facade that everything was okay to the, to the outside world, it sort of kept me in addiction for a long, long time. And the fact they thought I was an alcoholic because they knew I had serious, serious issues. But because it was alcohol, it was sort of accepted, which is crazy. Are you still in contact with the guys from your previous job? Yeah, they're amazing. Like, I worked there for 17 years. Like, they brought me back for a talk from a mental health week only there a couple of months ago. Or probably about six months ago now. So an amazing group of people in that job. The upper management really backed me. Like, they seen with the, one of the main guys in there was saying, since you haven't, even, like, when I just got that perspective shift in 2014, he said to me, when you seem evangelical, <laughs> I'll never forget the words he said. Like I was just on this cloud of talking about awareness and the power of now and all this kind of stuff. And um, they just—I they, think they seen a spark in my eye, and they seen how different I looked even within that few months. And they just started to get me that back in a little bit. I get—I got a little payoff in there, and I was able to pay me debts because I was in debt to about thirty-five thousand for drug dealers and loans and stuff like that, and money lenders. So that was able to pay off them debt. Debts, and I applied to go to college, and I went straight to college and got addicted to that for want of a better word. <laughs> and you're here now talking to me. I'm here now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you took in the in the book and on a lot of kind of mediums that like Brian is such a such a talented writer. Like if you sh- if you look on Medium and look at Brian's articles, they're they're incredible. You talk about your family an awful lot and like family is one of those things that you, you are born with you, you're, you're stuck with your family it doesn't matter who they are but you are stuck with them how did they cope with this and how did you cope with the whole thing around your family as well in regards to if you were aware of what you were doing and it was potentially hurting people at home how did you kind of cope with that when i got clean yeah. So, so I pretty much had no awareness of that in addiction. It's, it's a crazy thing to say. Obviously, I knew what was going on, but there was no like real awareness. They often say the addict has the knowledge that drugs are killing them. He knows that drugs aren't bad for him. There's no awareness. And once you become aware, you can't help but change. So awareness, I think, is the opposite of addiction. It's like true awareness of what is really going on. And once once you do that, you, you, you can't help but change. But um, when I got clean, there was a lot of problems when I got clean because even though I had this perspective shift. I had um I had an almighty preference for positive emotions. So I was like buzzing. It was like for years I was causing people a lot of harm, emotional pain. And then all of a sudden I get out with detox and I, I actually sent I actually I was only in detox after my hospital uh, visits. I was only in detox for four weeks and I was learning about Eastern philosophy and stuff like that. And as as mad of a shift I had, that was an amazing amazing thing for me. I was still a bit mad in the head I wasn't seeing the world from their perspective. I actually sent letters to my family telling them I'll fix them when I get out of detox. So 15 years of addiction, I'm doing a bit of reading of Eastern philosophy and I'll tell them I have a secret to life. I'll tell them all about it. 
So I had no, I had no awareness still of, of how the world actually worked. I was in the addiction for so long. I was like, I was just like men, uh, emotionally, emotionally stunted. Like re- I really was. So when I got out, then I was like, I was like the evangelical thing. I was living on cloud nine. I was telling people they really taste strawberries. Like, yeah, Jeff, I really taste the strawberries. Such a mad stuff. And my family thought I was a bit nuts, to be quite honest. But I knew something profound happened to me. Something, something. I just felt it in me being something that definitely happened to me. A shift in perspective. And I knew that. But over time, then my family supported me massive, massive support. And over time, then I got back into a bit of normality. I went back to college, and it just took time for me really to emotionally adjust to life but embarrassingly for me i have to say that and um, it took probably five years to um really feel the pain of what i'd actually done to really take the emotional perspective of the harm that i actually caused so the healing took a long time and and um, yeah and I, I had great relationships with my family and even over the years like we got on great i spent time in family especially with my mom and my sister and her kids there's been amazing experiences but I never, I never fully embraced the, the, the harm that I caused. And it was only when writing the book that I fully realized the depths of the harm that I caused people. And I, I remember being really, really hurt and emotionally myself. I, I interviewed, I interviewed was a horrible word. I, I talked to my mom and my sister to get facts about what happened. And I remember them telling me about what I'd actually put them through. And it was like I felt all of them emotions all in the space of a week. Like it, it rocked me to the core emotionally. And I literally just had to sit with them emotions for a week and just, just, like, just try to take them in. But in saying that as well, it's, it's only recently again that I had a sort of another shift with emotions that I've really, I've really gone, gone deep with my family about this stuff. And it's just, there's even healing still going on. But in saying that, we've amazing relationships like today. Like I go down to my mom and what I say, instead of, Instead of making her cry, uh, we have a laugh together. Instead of talking about mad stuff about my addiction or my lies, we're talking about life and meditation and stuff. So I'm a great relationship with my family today. But it's taken a lot of time and a lot of work for myself to really, really put that into place. It's incredible that you've turned that around with the thing. Sometimes when we, as in as people, as humans, when we get hurt, we hurt people. Like hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Um, and that, as the saying goes, but I think what you've mentioned there about the meditation, the meditation is really, really important to you. And you talk about a morning ritual. Yeah. What does that look like for you? And how did you decide upon that kind of morning ritual for you? Yeah, that has developed over time. And, and I actually, the very first, besides the prologue, the very first words of my book are, I'm the happiest person I know. And I would put that down to my morning ritual. Um, it's it's nearly a story that I tell myself is that the happiest person I know. Um, it's like our stories that our narratives are very important. And um, but my morning ritual, I would say, is the is, is the key component of that. So I, I have an acronym for my morning ritual. That's Mavic M A V I G. That stands for meditation, affirmations, visualization, inner child work, and gratitude. And I'll run through these really quickly. So I, I do probably six to eight minute meditation in the morning. So I, my, my morning routine is like 14 to 16 minutes long. And I do it every single day. No negotiating there. That's every single day. I do that. I die, like I, I think from Jerry Seinfeld is you don't break the chain. So I have a four-year-old chain of my morning routine. And I do not break that chain. It's, it's, it's so important to me. So I meditate for six to eight minutes. Then I will do affirmations, very simple affirmations. I am positive, happy, energetic, and carefree. And I will say that about 10 times with feeling because language I was chatting about was very, very important. Emotions travel through that. So I try to feel that visualization can change from time to time. I, I, I visualized for a long time on doing my book launch on the Ryan Torberty show. I nearly got there, except for COVID-19. 
or uh, Neil meditate Neil visualizations. I'm, I've been visualizing lately. lately yeah, writing my second book and the ups. That's a, a big, big thing of mine. And I will actually feel the sun on me back as I climb the mountains in the morning. I'll smell the pine leaves. Like I really bring myself into that experience. And I'll just do that for a minute or two. But the key part of visualization as well is I, I don't visualize winning the lottery. I visualize things that I can act upon. So I visualize myself writing that second book. I visualize myself going on these shows. So it gives me, it primes me to take action throughout the day. So that's a powerful part of my visualization, visualization practice as well. The inner child component is basically visualizing my inner child. So let's go back to the story at the start. I often visualize my infant self that got, got operated on without the anesthetic. And I literally just cradle that infant and just say, I have you now. I'm strong now. I have you everything is okay because the funny thing is like if i get anxious right now doing a public speaking talk or get anxious with me scar or to do with me trauma it's not me right now that's struggling it's 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 the conditioned old self so what you can do right now within our child work is just sort of tell visualize your former self the visualization piece is really important visualize your former self and cradle yourself or play football with them if it's a young kid or a dollhouse if it's a young kid whatever it is for you and just say I have you now everything is okay and it's incredible. it sounds a bit fluffy but it's incredible healing and that's one of the most important practices and again I just do that for a minute a minute in the morning and then the last piece which is probably the most important for me is gratitude and gratitude is one of the most powerful states to be in like I often say you can't be jealous you can't be angry you can't even be anxious while you're being grateful so I, I don't have a little gratitude list. I go deep and I visualize one specific piece of gratitude. My nephews, I wouldn't be in my nephew's life if I it was still an addiction because my sister had put me over life. So they were born at the time. I was only three. They let one of the little fellas. And I basically just say to myself, I'm grateful for the joy that Aaron brings into my life. And then I go deeper and again, I'm grateful for the joy that Aaron brings into my mum and dad's life when they mind them on a Monday and Tuesday, or, or when they had video calls with him through COVID-19. And I'm visualising his smile and I'm feeling that stuff. I'm really feeling that stuff. And the important part of the morning, people think morning routines are kind of fluffy, but as you mentioned at the start, I teach the neuro, neuroscience and I'm in the Institute of Neuroscience. Like many of these concepts are grounded in science. Meditation, it just changes the structure of your brain. I have brain scans where you can see my brain has actually changed. And visualization, if you're visualizing something, if you're enjoying something, the visual cortex of your brain says, sends signals to the dopamine center of your brain, releasing dopamine, giving you pleasure. If you're visualizing that stuff through visualization or gratitude practices, you're actually pumping yourself full of dopamine in the morning. So the way I see my morning routine practice is I, I, I make, I'm priming myself to be more focused, more attentive, more grateful, more positive before I even leave my room. Like, what a way to start the day rather than someone else having a, having an argument with the shit with their boss while they're having a shower. They're running through the narrative of what's going to happen wrong in the day. So I just think prime yourself for positivity when you start on the right foot. I think that's just one of the one of the most important tools people can use in their lives. You've mentioned the dopamine thing. I think a lot of people don't realise that we've spoken about social media and the power of it, like, off-air yeah. and stuff. And, like, when you're... When you're on so when you're on social media and you put up a post and you are looking for all these likes, you're le- literally searching for a dopamine hit. Yeah. So it's funny it's that it's the same reaction. Powerful. Yeah, it's it's yeah. mad and and I've seen the the scans that you've put up of the the two the two the brains. brains. They look like two yeah. different pe- people's brains. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so I would guys, I definitely head over to Brian's website uh, www. and have a look at some of those images because it's it's my it's mind-boggling uh as well it, it, it's it's mental um the one that like you have a you have three mantras that i think are the ones that i kind of want to hone in on um and 
one of them is when you get out of your head everything changes and I think that is something that a lot of us struggle with and a lot of people are struggling with at the minute in particular yeah yeah and it's it's a funny one like why do you take drugs to get out of your head <laughs> why are people drinking during lockdown to get away from their feelings and feelings and thoughts are, are, are interactive so you're trying to get out of your head or get out of your body for one another, another way of looking at it as well but the, the funny thing is that we take drugs for that very reason but salvation in the non-drug world also lies with getting out of your head like anxiety lives in the future anxiety is basically fear of the unknown thinking about the unknown thinking about this uncertain future and that's where anxiety lives depression if you're prone to depression you'll find you'll be regrets missed opportunities sadness that's all thinking about the past so thoughts about the future and thoughts about the past is where suffering lies but what you need to do is think it, overthink it. So you need to get out of your head. And for me, getting out of your head means bringing yourself into the present moment. And we've talked about mindfulness and meditation. That's great for that. But you don't have to have a mindfulness practice. Like you can just actually, in any moment, just center yourself, focus on the breath. And if you just take a couple of deep breaths, 10 deep breaths, you're getting out of your head. You're getting into your body. You're, 10 deep breaths actually have a physical impact on your body. You're, you're activating the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest part of your body. You're in the present moment. Problems don't exist in the present moment. They just don't. That's getting out of your head for me. It's just getting into the moment. I think a lot of people are afraid to be alone with their thoughts. I think that's one of the biggest yeah. things. Like you've spoke, spoken about people, a lot more people are drinking during lockdown. Yeah. Uh, you can even see I've, I've seen sometimes like my house is across the road from uh, a busy shopping centre and you can see people at like 11 or 12 they're coming out with with the crates and stuff getting ready for the weekend and if I look out now I probably see the same thing but it's it's mad that people are just afraid to be to be with their own head and be with their own thoughts and it's funny like that's the one thing that we do own but we don't necessarily want to own it because we're too, too superficial. We want the car, we want the house, but we yeah. actually we don't want to control our heads. It's mad. Yeah, it's mad. It's absolutely mad. There's, there's a great there's a great technique that I use for that, and I think it's it's the big game changer for me with changing my relationship with anxiety. Like I still get anxiety. It's it's a natural human experience. But what what I do with anxious feelings and anxious thoughts is I become the observer of that, and that's that's a way of getting into the present moment as well. So I nearly take a step back. And just observe it without engaging. Like if I feel anxiety comes from me in my chest, so if I feel anxious in my chest, I'll just observe. I'll just start to, like taking a step back and say, well, I'm just going to observe that. I'm not going to engage with it. And just sit there and observe it. And I think through that practice, that's a present moment practice as well, where you become the observer of self rather than being consumed by your thoughts and your feelings. And that's been a very powerful practice for me, especially on public speaking. If I get feeling that anxiety come, I say, right, I'm just going to watch you come. Gonna watch you go. The anxiety will come. The anxiety will go, and it's been a, a great practice for me over time. It's a really, a really powerful way for dealing with anxiety, especially. That, that is, that is, uh, I think that's very, very powerful. Um, the the other mantra that I want to talk about was be true to your wonderfully weird self, and I think it's funny when when people say they're weird, but like, what is normal? We don't even live in a normal right now. Like the new norm is COVID. What is normal? Yeah, what is normal? Uh, so yeah, if you could expand on be true to your wonderfully weird self, that would be amazing. Yeah, love it. And it's funny. It's uh, normal. I remember hearing this one time. Normal is normal isn't what's accepted. Normal is the norms. So if eighty percent of people in a population are all robbers, that's the norm. 
So it's normal to rob. So norms is just what most people do. So it doesn't make it right. And I remember that that was mind blowing to me. And I, I heard a quote by uh, Morty Krishna one time says, um, "It's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society." And I just love that. It's like that gave me permission to be weird. I'm saying it's okay to be weird because I don't want to be. If if the if the norm if normal means struggling with anxiety, struggling with stress, and being part of the rat race, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be normal. I'm embracing me weird, like you know. And and that's where that mantra that mantra came from. I remember reaching out to lots of CEOs, sports people, and um, back in 2018, and I just cold called all of these like leading executives, leading people, some of the top companies in in Ireland and the world internationally as well. That's a New York Times bestseller norm. So I just reached out to them, and the amount I was I, I I didn't know what to write in the email to them. So what I actually done, I just poured my heart onto the page, and I remember one of them says, "I'm a ridiculously enthusiastic learner." I told them about my addiction, what I'm doing now, the mission I have. I done a retrospective analysis of that email, and I I, I, I create a sense of intrigue as well. So I, there was a couple of components that I got lucky with as well. But the big part was that I just poured my heart onto the page and told them everything. I was true to my wonderfully weird self. And what happened was I had an eighty percent response rate to that of the early people. The amount of people that responded was unbelievable. And I remember thinking to myself, right, be true to your wonderfully weird self because you'll attract what you need and repel what you don't. So if you if you take your masks off, as we discussed before, take that mask off and be who you are, you will attract the people that are aligned to you and you will repel the people that aren't. And repel is a terribly strong word, but it's just not everyone's going to like it. And you're not going to like everyone. That's just people don't vibe with everybody. Life doesn't work that way. So you're aligning yourself with people that might want to lift you higher, you can lift them higher, people that are on your same wavelength. You're possibly opening yourself up to a bit of naivety, but, and, and you might get stung along the lines. And people have said that to me, but the freedom that gives me, I think it's worth it. Yeah, but I think what you've alluded to also is like not caring what other people think. I think that's yeah. and that's the last one. I think that like we spoke off air, and that was the one sentence that got me out of my funk was that those simple words. But like they, they're simple words to some people, but it is it's funny what resonates with you and a weird and it's like a book. Some books can resonate with you at particular times. Like I started reading uh, Man's Search for Meaning at the at the beginning of lockdown, and I was like, if that wasn't the right time to start reading that book, I don't know what was. But then there's yeah. other books I'm looking at in my head, and I've read them, but they haven't mes- necessarily resonated with me. So it's funny what sentences can resonate with you. But like, we we'll talk about kind of like caring what other people think, because that is a massive, massive thing. We live in this information overload. P- eyes on you at all time. Social media, like I, if I didn't have, if if social media wasn't there, I wouldn't have a job. And yeah. and that's and that's and that's and that's me being. I wouldn't be able to promote. The, I wouldn't be able to get yourself on. I wouldn't be able to talk in general through a microphone and, and kind of get people to to listen to the podcast and promote messages, whatever I feel at the time. Can you kind of talk about it a little bit more about social media? Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm exactly I'm exactly the the, the same, Shane. It's um, and I th- I think it's really about using it for the right reasons. Like if 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 you're it's, I would use social media, and it's funny because we mentioned that that dopamine hit. Like I, I'm still getting the dopamine hit, like from the likes and from people engaging in the content, because it means that they like what I'm doing as well, and it's, it's sort of related to that as well. But um, social media can be a very dangerous game as well, because if you're feeding into the wrong kind of feeds, and you're 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 you're, you're I don't know, you're looking for attention, or you're feeding into the negative feeds, and and I aim browsing. Browsing aimlessly on social media. I don't do that because it's more of a business for me. 
But I remember once or twice getting caught up on that. I, think, I often find if, if I'm in a room with someone and they're browsing and no one's talking, I think I've done it. And this is horrible. Like, it actually gives me a really bad feeling. It's like makes you procrastinate more and you're flicking and you're not looking at anything. It's just so, it's like man's search for meaning. Like that book spoke to me so highly. Like you have to have purpose and drive in your life to, to be truly happy. That's that's what I, I think. And social media is an amazing, amazing platform if used for the right reasons. But it can be very, very, very problematic as well, and I think that's 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 the problem. It's it's really it's really taking a step back from that and seeing what's what what purpose does it serve for you. I think that's very important because it's highly addictive. Like it's it's so addictive. Like I get a real kick out of checking the social media. I'm not going to lie and say that's not a fact. I do look at it. It's a little bit of addiction for me as well. It's a really really powerful medium. So you need to be careful of that as well. Yeah, like I've I've spoken on a few episodes recently. I read a book called Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. I kind of I think it was I think it was slow, shortly after Man's Search for Meaning, and he mentioned an app called Freedom, which can you can block the social media on your phone. So as we're speaking right now, I am locked out of my social media and a lot of my apps until about seven o'clock, and then I'm locked out of it from like eight o'clock until seven o'clock tomorrow morning. So I'm an early riser, so I'm I'm like I'm normally wide awake at six o'clock. So I try to read at first thing in the morning. So it sets me into my routine. Obviously, there's days where there's there's things happening and stuff like that that I have to. You can override the app. Yeah. But for I'd say ninety nine percent of the time, I leave the app run, and I actually feel more productive, feel better mentally for it because I think a lot of us, particularly now, we are literally just. Like a lot of there's nothing wrong with watching Netflix. There's nothing binge wrong with binge on Netflix and stuff like that. But if it's having an impact on your mood and you're literally just sitting there and you're feeling a little bit blah, a little bit crap, you, you know what to do. It's sometimes it's just like just fucking do it. <laughs> just do it. The Nike ad is just it's, the best thing ever. Just do it. I, I always say, right, this is my big one as well. I'm gonna be moving into a new apartment soon as well. Now I might actually get it in my bedroom on the ceiling. Don't negotiate with your own mind. Because <laughs> yeah. when you start negotiating, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, and like, I, I'm, uh, I'm reading a book called Essentialism right now. Oh, Greg McKeown. Yeah. I chatted to Greg McKeown. I have listened to the books beside me. One of the people me. I reached out there, I love it. What a book. It's what unbelievable. Um, and, uh, it, and it is, literally, and it, all, like, a lot of it, the, the messages are in, in that book are in The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Uh, Another great book, Mark Manson, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and if it's not a fuck yeah it's a no so it's so it's it's it that that sentence and it comes across with any like social situation but sometimes you you, you perceive that you're going to be a little bit like perceived as being an asshole or whatever for, for not going to these social situations or saying no to jobs or saying no to i don't know going to do a live with someone or whatever it may be but if it's not if it's not like not that it's not going to benefit you but if it's not kind of like within your kind of sphere or if it's not going to uh, help you or it's not kind of within your time frame or, or if you got a deadline or some of that and it's going to pull you off or put you off it but then i think you need to you just need to stick to your own guns i think and a lot of people are too many too many people pleasers and i think now what's happening now is people are working from home so they have their social media on they have their phones on their the tvs on they have their they have the bosses ringing them left right and center if you simply put your 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 internet on airplane mode or your anything on airplane mode you'll be surprised how productive you'll be 
deep work it's all about the deep work and, and, and you can do that in a couple of hours like the amount of work you can get done in deep work if you knock off them distractions like I, I've done a lot of research around distractions and how long it takes you to get back into it it's 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 that's where all the good stuff happens and all the research all the books out there and all the people that are hyper successful in any endeavors in life whether it's spirituality whether it's finance and all these things the, the, the high performers the good the big performers they all have these fundamental practices in their life it's, it's like it's like the likes of Google and uh, LinkedIn. They have their kind of creative time in, in the companies. Like Jeff, I think it's Jeff Weiner from LinkedIn. He has his creative time for like two hours a day, I think, yeah. something like that. And they're the ideas where he kind of comes up with the stuff that's being produced now on LinkedIn that you see in the background. It's uh, it's mad. Uh, we are going to talk about the book. So how did the book come about because it, it is an interesting story i didn't know the how it came about uh and what's where can people find it what's the name of it and i'll let you take it away super i'll tell you one of my favorite stories from the book is how i got the title of the book so and um, when i reached out to ceos the the first ceo i reached out to was fergal nocton whose family happens to be one of the richest in ireland i had no idea at the time so i was got 15 minutes with the ceo didn't know what i was doing uh, over in um, what's the name uh, Glen Dimplex I think it was 5 billion something ridiculous I walked into these offices and what the hell is this place and I got 15 minutes with Fergal he was brilliant and um, I remember thinking not known I remember inviting him to a talk and giving him directions to Trinity College one time and um, I remember a year later walking back it was in Nocton House <laughs> Do you know where this building is? It was his house. But um, it was gas. But the second person that I thought was going to get 15 minutes with each of these CEOs, and the second one I reached out to was John Boyle of Boyle Sports, like billion euro empire or whatever, started from scratch. And I went up to Dundalk to meet John, didn't know what to expect. But I remember straight away there was a serenity about him. And, and he said, jump into the car, we go for a coffee. And I knew it was getting more than 15 minutes. And I remember him asking me, yeah, when, when's your birthday? And I said, 6th of April. He says, no, you're a real birthday. And he instinctively knew what he was talking about. I says, oh, 8th, 8th of October, 2014. And he says, mine's the 23rd of September. And he gave me the year. He was 27 years clean. And he was in addiction as well. So we had a three-hour chat. I'm going to be going over to Malibu. To, um, we're supposed to be going over the summer over to Malibu where he lives in California. Actually, we've become friends and he's a mentor of mine now. And I remember at the end of that first chat, John turned around and he says, you know why you're sitting here right now? you don't give a crap you're living on bonus time that's where I got the name of the book bonus time like it's given a second chance of life I don't care what people think I don't compare myself to others I take risks and I do these kinds of things and that was that was that was that was, that was a great it was a sort of a part of the whole process like I wasn't writing a book at that time that just gave me the name of the book and then I started writing the book and the name that name stuck with me but how I got to write the book was and through lecturing in UCD I met Niall Breslin Brezzi who was a student in the class and I remember Brezzy thought, he was waiting for it. Brezzy was actually very anxious that day. He's open about that because it was his first time back in UCD since his days of mental health difficulty. He was struggling that day. And he was a bit intimidated by neuroscience and doing the course, the new mindfulness course. And it was at the start, and he could talk rings around. And I was brilliant at it, but he was a bit nervous at that time. And he was waiting for this uh, lanky, sort of bespectacled uh, lecturer to come in with a tweed jacket. And then strolls me with me salad tape on my laptop and me, me double an accent. And he thought it was the tech help. <laughs> it was gas. So it turned out that I put on the slides. I talked about my addiction. I brought my whole story into it. He was just, he, I think he was impressed with what way I was just honest, raw, didn't give a crap and just went with it. 
and we really vibed. And me and Brezzy then were going to write a book together on mindfulness. We might go back to it at some stage. He started his podcast that he's done on that sort of what, some of the stuff we we're going to get into. But um, that's what it fell through in the end. We went we went in different directions in the end. So we might get back to that at some stage. But well, he opened so many doors for me, and when I dealing with him, like we're nearly signed on the dotted line. I was talking to Gail, and I got you know literary agent and the Lisa Richards agency, Faith O'Grady. She was brilliant, and um, I, they asked me, "Here, do you want to write your memoir?" And we love your story. Let's write your memoir. And that's really where the book came from. I went, went from there, and that was it. It's it's an amazing story, uh, and it's funny who you meet along the way, uh, and like we put these people up on pedestals. Um, and but as you said, you emailed like 20 people. You got to meet Niall from or Brezzy, uh, from from the from the class. Um, and you got to meet the guy that the, the the main guy from Boyle Sports, and he gave the title for the book. It's funny what happens. It's uh, funny what happens. Yeah, uh, just put your hand out to be slapped. Like, give yourself a chance. You know. Yeah, uh, big time. Uh, and where can people buy the book? Um, and yeah. All the details. Yeah, yeah, all the details. So the best place to go for anything so far on all my social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, any of that stuff, I post stuff regularly there. It's just go to my website. So it's Brian www.brianpenny.com. That's Brian Penny with a P-E-N-N-I-E. And there's a book section there. All my blogs are there, my videos are there. There's a book section there as well. If Easton's would be the best place for Ireland, the audio book, the ebook, all of that different stuff, all the things there. So the website is definitely the best place to go. Guys, definitely head over to the website, get the book because I've I've listened to the interviews. I have downloaded the book, and I am going to head off on a walk now to listen to it after uh, Brian has spoken about it. It's it's an incredible journey, and it's it just shows that you can turn things around. It doesn't matter where you are, the depths of what of despair that people may get into, you can definitely turn things around. And I'm 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 so thankful that you've been so honest about it. I know you wear your heart in your sleeve anyway, but I'm I'm very grateful for you giving up so much of your time um for having a chat. And I'm gonna put all the information into the about the book in the write up. So guys, if you want you're interested, just click on the link and it'll bring you over to the website where you can kinda where you can buy the book. So Brian, thank you so much for for coming on. I'm very grateful for your time, and I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I wish you the best of luck, and and hope you stay safe in this weird and wacky time. Thanks, yeah, so much, and I just say, what's called like, it was bumps still this talk, like absolutely brilliant, loved it, absolute pleasure. Spot on, thank you so much, Brian. See you now, bye. If you've enjoyed the episode at all, guys, please do tag myself and Brian up on your story. It's been. An absolute pleasure, and my mind is blown after that episode. It's Brian's been so open and so honest about that, and I'm so over the moon that I managed to get him on. And big shout out to Philly McMahon for giving the shout out for that as well. So, guys, if you've enjoyed it all, please do tag us. If you have any questions or want to to pop Brian a message at all, please do feel free to pop by there with a message. Talk to you soon, guys. Thank you so much for listening, and stay safe.